This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt Shirley. well we made it we got to friday so as ever we kick things off by taking a look at what we learned this week The week began with Angela Rayner insisting if there was going to be a reshuffle, she'd definitely know about it. No, I'm not aware of any plans for a reshuffle. I haven't been consulted, so I don't think there's any, you know, focus on that at the moment. I reckon that Keir would tell me first, yeah. So within minutes, Keir Starmer started the reshuffle, designed to revitalise his leadership and inject some youthful vigour by appointing Yvette Cooper, who's been an MP since 1997, as Shadow Home Secretary. She's even done this job before and was so good at shredding her opponent's reputation that she became Prime Minister. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Does that mean we've now got to get ready for Prime Minister Pretty Patel? Instead of living at number 10, presumably she'll live at number... 300,034,974,000... Talking of everyone's favourite little bundle of fun, Pretty Patel was said to be running around the Home Office like a headless chicken, wanting to be on a plane to whoever will speak to her to tackle the migrant crisis. She's now so desperate she's resorted to kicking herself out of the country. Elsewhere, to prove that Christmas wasn't cancelled, Boris Johnson took time out of his busy schedule of U-turns and naps to turn on the Downing Street lights. He turned them on and then they went off again before having another go. I don't normally have any trouble turning them on, he told the group of baffled school children. But there is some confusion about what you can and can't do at Christmas parties this year. We don't want people to feel that they need to start cancelling things. No wonder he's so keen on parties, given the knees up in Downing Street during restrictions last year, which included drinks, nibbles and horrors of horrors, office party games. No wonder Dominic Cummings left. So what can you do at parties this year? Well, the business minister, George Freeman, isn't having one at all. I tell you, the Department of Business, we won't be having a big Christmas party. My parliamentary team will um, get together on Zoom and toast each other. Well, that sounds grim. And a real hold-on-to-your-eggnog moment, Therese Coffey says we can have a party, but... Well, for what it's worth, I, you know, I don't think there should be much snogging under mistletoe. Which prompted Sajid Javid to reveal... People can snog who they wish. You know, I'll certainly be you know, kissing my wife under the mistletoe. It's a Javid family tradition. Although someone took the idea that it was a Christmas tradition to go and give Mrs Javid her festive booster a bit too literally. Of course I, I regret my actions and, you know, I, I'm, 
and I've apologised for the for them for the and and uh, for people I let down. All of which meant the Tory Party chairman Oliver Dowden didn't sound awkward this morning at all. Well, I, I won't be snogging strangers under the, the the mistletoe. I can assure you of that. But um... I think I preferred it when we marked the run up to Christmas in the traditional way, arguing about Scotch eggs. And that is what we learned this week. Right, coming up on today's episode, how would you like to vote on the laws of the land? You can, but it depends who your dad is. We take a look at hereditary peers as a fresh attempt is made to stop them voting themselves into the House of Lords. So we'll do that in just a moment. But first we kick off with our columnist panel and on a Friday as ever, it's Melanie Reid and James Forsyth. Let's talk about the politics of sport. And it's really sort of slightly out of nowhere this story has uh, popped up. Um, and both Michael Gove, Conservative Cabinet Minister, and his new opposite number, his shadow levelling up Secretary Lisa Nandy, have condemned the, uh, the news that Lewis Hamilton uh, and well, his team, Mercedes, have uh, named Kingspan as a partner. Uh, but uh, Kingspan is a company which was involved in the cladding of Grenfell Tower, and uh, Michael Gove has, uh, well, in fact, both of them, have, as we were just hearing the news, both of them have, have condemned uh, this decision to align with a company uh, which um, uh, was involved in, in the dust. What do you what do you think of this, first of all, uh, Melanie? Because um, politics and sport, we've seen it a lot this year, whether it was the taking the knee of the football, of the England football team, and, you know, lots of politicians there, you know, Conservative MPs told, you know, MP, the players to, to keep out of politics. Marcus Rashford was criticised for getting involved in politics. Sport and politics, it's impossible to, to keep the two things separate, isn't it? It is. And sport is, is uh, I think, quite cynically used by um, by companies to improve, its re- to improve their reputations. You know, the sports washing, um, the, 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 this great expression. And I also think that Formula One is shameless. Um, we we, we kind of knew that already. Um, Kingspan, in fairness, they they you know they made it, but they didn't design the stuff, uh, um, uh, and they are you know it's on the nose cone of the cars. I think uh, you know when a sport is as shameless as Formula One, um, do, do you know do we do anything or do we let it go on the way it is? I, I personally think it probably will just ignore us and it'll ignore the politicians and do what it's always done i it's we we you know we can get on to we can get on to the nuances of it but uh, i'd be very surprised if 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 it's taken off that nose cone i mean the thing is james no one will think oh what hang on formula 1 and the baddies I thought that they were, you know, um, uh, (laughs) this great sort of moral arbiter. They were the good guys at Formula One. Uh, Nobody really thinks that necessarily, do they? But it just strikes me as interesting that Michael, this is, you know, uh, uh, something that Michael Gove's decided to get stuck into, saying that he's going to write to Mercedes, asking them to reconsider, uh, saying the Grenfell community deserves better. Um, But nobody really thinks that that, that Formula One has, uh, you know, uh, necessarily the standards we, that we should live by. Yeah, and I mean, I think sport is the great moral arbiter. I mean, look where the Winter Olympics are about to take place. So in China, right, a country where human rights are not exactly respected or or consider, you know, the premiership where you've got Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund taking a large stake in uh, Newcastle United. I, I think this is 
problematic. I think in a way what the Gove letter does is 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 it means that the kind of positive publicity that they might hope to to, to gain from this ha- has been slightly undone. And I think it will probably make some other firms uh, think twice about trying to do something like this because if you're trying to get good publicity and you end up with both Tory and Labour politicians uh, attacking the sponsorship deal, it, it slightly defeats the object. And I suppose the thing about uh, Formula One is that, well, it's not just because the, the Winter Olympics are being held. Um, you know, the, you've got football, ha- you know, the football is the World Cup happening in Qatar. And, I mean, and previously, Lewis Hamilton has said he's not comfortable driving in Saudi Arabia. He said, do I feel comfortable here? I wouldn't say I do, but it's not my choice to be here. The sport has to, has to, has taken the choice to be here, whether it's right or wrong. Uh, while we are here, I think it's important that we try what we try to do is raise awareness. But, I mean, that's just a sort of like, I'm just paid lots of money to sit in this car. Other the, the moral decisions are made by someone else. It, it, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, Lewis Hamilton is is he's very woke now, and he 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 he's in the least woke sport in the in in the world, which 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 goes to work in the least woke countries in the in the planet. And you know, he wears he wears a rainbow on his hat, a rainbow a rainbow on his helmet, and uh, and yet he's going racing in. In, in Saudi and says he feels uncomfortable about it, where there's no human rights, women's rights and LGBT rights. It's, it's, it's laughable. Um, but hey, it's as long as he's making is continuing to be a multimillionaire, then who cares, you know? <laughs> Sorry. Although, I think there there is one sporting body that we can we can commend among this kind of sea of kind of uh, moral relativism out there. I think mean, the Women's Tennis Association has been impressive in how it has dealt with the, with the disappeared Chinese tennis player. I mean, I mean, I mean that they they will take a significant financial hit from deciding to cancel all their events in China and Hong Kong. Uh, but I think, but I think, they, I think they've clearly done the right thing. That's an interesting. That's an interesting. In a way, I suppose that shows it can be done. The, the, you can't they're just throwing your hands in the air um, doesn't necessarily mean that you, you know the, the, there are there are alternatives to just saying oh that's the that's the way the world is um, and it's really interesting we've we've talked on the show before about the you know, the idea of boycotting the the Winter Olympics in in China and you know the effect that has we spoke to Sharon Davis who went to the Moscow Olympics I think at a time when there was a lot of pressure from the concern by from Thatcher's government to, to boycott. And at that point, I think the decision was taken that sport and politics were separate. But it feels like, you know, we're a million miles away from that. Um, uh, and the way that sport is so clearly used for sort of, what do they call it, like sport washing, I think that's what they call it. Sports um, washing, the, yeah. Sports washing, yeah. yeah. The, 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 um, you know, to, it's sort of cleaning up, that sports is literally being used to clean up their reputation. Also, I mean, part of me just thinks, why, how many people watching... Uh, Formula One around the world are going to think, oh, I should get my cladding from Kingspan. It's not like, you know, it's not like Lidl or, uh, you know, Coca-Cola or something, where it's clearly like a marketing opportunity to, to, to make, you might go and buy their products. How many people are in the market for cladding anyway? I mean, it, apart from sort of cleaning up their reputations and making them, you know, aligning them with, with a cool sport by like Formula One. It's not really an advertising opportunity, is it? Well, well Kingspan say it's, it's, it's showing they're sustainable because they make sustainable, what, SIPs panels to build your, your, your eco-house with. You know, it's, it's, you know, that's the other side of the argument. So, but, 
Yeah. I mean, if, if Formula One had its way, we'd still have tobacco advertising. You know, come on. We'd still have cigarette packets on the side of cars. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, we, talked about, we, we talked about smoking on the show yesterday, and it got a bit heated between someone from Ash and someone from Forest. So let's move on before uh, before we have a repeat of that. <laughs> James, let's talk about your let's talk about your uh, column today. Um, uh, sort of addressing uh, where I mean, once again, I suppose we'll week on. I think we talked about this last week, but the government still doesn't really seem to have any serious plan on how to deal with the uh, uh, the, the channel crossing issue. Uh, yeah, I think the I think the problem is you look at this letter from the, the French Prime Minister Castex to, to Boris Johnson. It, it's quite clear, that given the state of relations with France, the idea that there, there, that that, you're, that there's some easy fix there is for the birds. And so I think you know that means that ministers are becoming more and more keen on the idea of an offshore processing centre. But there's there's one slight problem with this idea: they haven't persuaded anywhere to, to host it. Now I think if you talk to ministers now, the view is that you know a British overseas territory is probably a more likely bet than than, 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 a, than, a, than a foreign country. But but again, the problem is if you look at the population of these British overseas territories, in nearly every place, the number of people who would be in this offshore processing centre would dwarf the local population. And so, again, I think it's hard to imagine uh, one of these overseas territories saying, well, yes, you know, what, what we really want to do is, is to host this place for you. And so I think that the government will really struggle with this. I mean, look, I mean, next week, Boris Johnson will attack and Priti Patel will attack Labour for voting against this bill and all this. But they, but they aren't any closer to solving the problem than they were the day after the 2019 general election. And that that then becomes a political problem for them, doesn't it? Because nobody, you know, nobody thinks that the Labour Party are the party of you know tough on crime and you know, despite Keir Starmer's best efforts. But uh, the, the the Tories have this reputation on tough on crime, tough on immigration. Priti Patel exists almost solely to talk tough on these issues, um, but they don't really know what to do about them. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, I think as long as. There isn't a party doesn't emerge to the right of the Tories, but they'll they probably will not pay that high electoral price for this. But if you got a kind of Farage 2.0, they would have a real problem. I mean, if you look at the by election result last night, you know, you see how this isn't really happening yet. You know, reform, despite all of the government's troubles over the last month, and despite the fact that reform stood its party leader, Richard Tyser, they still got less than 7% of the vote in, in, in Bexley, which should be the kind of seat in which they do well. You know, you can just imagine how well Farage might have done in a seat like that in the current political circumstances. And But I think that what the Tories are vulnerable to is some pop-up party emerging with a Farage-style figure, someone with, you know, and that could then take a big chunk out of a Tory vote. And you could see Labour then, uh, you can imagine circumstances in which Labour can deny the Tories a majority without actually making any progress from where they are now. Uh, What do you make of of this, Manny? I was very interested that James sort of raised the old chestnut of um, the Tories would start talking about getting people um, off drugs in prison, you know, trying to tackle crime through... Um, altering our problem with drugs uh, because it—I mean—it really is a case of good luck. Good luck with that one because it's—it's it's one of these <laughs> uns- actually absolutely unsolvable social problems. Um, I mean, maybe you could take try and—you know—the the, the, they could try and take some advice from Nicola Sturgeon on that one because I mean, Scotland has the worst—the worst drugs record, worst drugs problem in Europe. There, there are no easy ways around it, and getting drugs out of prison is, 
you know, it's very easy to have it as a slogan, but the reality of it is, is it's, 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 it's almost impossible. Drugs keep a lid on prisons. Um, but let's move on and talk about. I want to talk uh, about uh, Storm Arwen and uh, this suggestion, which I I suspect is probably right, that if most of Surrey had been without power for a week, uh, we wouldn't have heard the last of it. Um, but the, the poor old folks of Aberdeenshire, Perthshire, and so on have have had a much rougher rougher time of it. Um, I mean, it is incredible that they've been left without power for so long. Um, but it, and it has it doesn't seem to have really sort of vented the national consciousness. We are tough cookies up here. We really are. <laughs> you know. Um, I think I think when you live in rural areas, you just understand it's a different way of life. It's not rural Surrey. It's not it's not nice and cozy down there. It, nice and cozy like it is with you chaps. It is you know there are. Trees come down on power lines, power lines, the huge big pylons, the, the wires get blown off them. And to get those things back on, to cut down, you know, hun- literally hundreds of trees of, of fallen lines, it's, it's, a, it's a mammoth task. Um, and the, I've actually met some of the teams that do the work. And they work, these guys are incredible. They are the sort of the fifth emergency service. Um, you know, so we, they're the ones we, trying to get the electric back on. You mean? Yeah, with yeah. you know the guys with chainsaws welded to their hands, that are trying to c- cut the trees down, or or at high risk putting the cables back on the top of pylons, and it's a very tough, macho, wild job. And I think um, in in our, in our warm sheltered offices, um, we uh, underestimate exactly what real life can be like sometimes even in the 21st century so i you know I, it, it amuses me that how sorry would squeal sorry wouldn't survive up here you know the, 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 <laughs> you 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 do you do softies you southern softies would uh, you shrivel up up here honestly there is something in this isn't there i remember some flooding a few years back and like most of northern england was underwater but then because Philip Hammond's constituency was a bit wet, uh, suddenly this was a really big deal and the government had to swing into action. Yeah, I, I think it is frankly amazing that you've got, you've got people in the northeast of England and the northeast of Scotland who have had six days without any power in their homes. You know, um, my folks live in the Lake District and they had, uh, they had kind of just under two days about it. And that was bad enough. But, you know, in the current weather at this time of year, six days without power is a, is a, is a real problem. And I think it is just remarkable how long in a, in a, in a developed country it's taking to restore power to people's homes. I mean, this is, this is pretty basic stuff. Mm. And what is the issue, Melanie? Is it because the storm, because it was, so, I remember looking at like, the, the, the storm warnings. We talked, um, I think, to, um, uh, what's his name? Hammond, the weatherman, last week. And um, mm. he, he was saying that part of the problem is the whole country at one point was covered in one sort of storm warning or another. It was so widespread. It's not like one small area, you know, one power line is down so you can quickly repair it. It's, it's a massive amount of damage, isn't it? Whole swathes of trees came down, like, you know, acres and acres. Half-mile stretches of trees came down on power lines. And, you know, it is physically impossible to to just to sort of send one chap out with a chainsaw and get that lifted off it's the scale i think which which um 
you know, you know, with with all due respect, it's the scale of the problem which I think you yeah, guys yeah. Uh, don't 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 get. And um, <laughs> uh, Bleak Moorland. I mean, I once tried. The Times was once doing a a, a series on on the sort of most dangerous jobs in Scotland, in, 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 in Britain. And I was asked to join in and I did a couple and I tried very hard to get on one of these teams, these, um, you know, the, the electricity teams that restore power. And they refused me permission because it was simply too dangerous. James Forsyth and Melody Reed. then. You can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Fed Box. Up next... Is this the end of the Hereditary Peer Show? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box podcast now. It's time for this. Now then, let's talk about the House of Lords. The House of Lords is the s- second largest legislative legislative assembly in the world. Now, most lords are appointed by the prime minister or other party leaders and sit in the house uh, for uh, the full extent of their lives, uh, but no more. But others, still to this day, are aristocrats who inherit their seat and therefore legislative power. Over 20 years ago now, Tony Blair attempted to reform the system of hereditary peers, whittling them down from 750 to just 92. But it means that there is a by-election system. So if one of the 92 dies or retires, uh, they have a little vote between themselves to elect someone else to the House of Lords, based uh, only really on whether or not on who their dad was. Well, as we speak right now, Lord Grocott, a life peer, who we'll hear from a little bit later, he is in the House of Lords, putting forward a motion to abolish the hereditary peer system for good. So I think we could just dip into the House of Lords and see how he's getting on. ...and damaging measure before the House today, which I trust will never reach the statute book. My Lords, I rise to express my strong support for Lord Grocott's bill. And in doing so, I do want to emphasise that this is in no sense a comment on the abilities or contribution of individual hereditary peers. I know so that as well was as we Viscount uh, Trenchard uh, giving his response. Obviously, not very happy with the idea that's been put forward. Uh, and we'll, we'll keep dipping in uh, to the House of Lords because uh, it's a very contentious issue about who should be there and who shouldn't, sitting on the red leather benches. Well, in a moment, we'll hear from Lord Grocott uh, about his plans. We'll also hear from uh, the Earl of Caithness who is a hereditary peer, uh, but thinks we should go much further and abolish uh, the, House, the appointed House of Lords altogether. First, Meg Russell is Professor of British and Comparative Politics and Director of the Constitution Unit at University College London. Morning, Meg. Hello. Uh, we've also got to Jess, uh, Dr Jess Garland, Director of Policy and Research at the Electoral Reform Society. Hi, Jess. Hi, yeah. 
Meg, explain. I think I sort of did a potted uh, history of this, but explain for me the exactly how uh, the uh, hereditary by-elections work, uh, because it's sort of slightly weird. Pe- lots of people probably don't know that actually some people are elected to the House of Lords. It's just most of us don't get to vote in that election. Yes, that's right. It is an extremely weird system, and it's a system that. Basically, Labour, when it legislated for Lords reform uh, back more than 20 years ago, never really expected to come into effect because uh, there was supposed to be a two-stage reform um, and uh, there was a temporary um, arrangement put in place whereby these 92 hereditaries would stay on, um, but they would be swept away in the second stage and the by-elections would kick in two years later if they hadn't gone. And here we are, 22 years later, and they're still there. So we're celebrating 20 years of the by-elections. It's an extremely strange system. Um, most of the members are elected for their political parties or to sit on the cross benches as independent peers. And the hereditary peers in those groups are invited to vote on a slate of candidates, and those candidates themselves have to be hereditary peers. So they're drawn from a pool of the descendants of former members of the House of Lords. There's then 15 people who are elected as office holders uh, by the whole House. So um, it, it is a very, very strange system. The seats are distributed very unevenly. So you've got more than 50 Conservatives, but only a handful of Labour and Liberal Democrat members. Um, And if you're thinking about who they are, it's important, I I would say two things. One, what the Baroness said, who just was uh, played in the clip, that this is about the principle. It's not necessarily about the quality of the individuals. And the individuals are not exactly aristocrats. Um, I mean, among the hereditary peers, we've got the grandson of uh, Clement Attlee, the post-war Labour Prime Minister, and just recently elected is the Uh, son of um, Tony Benn and brother of Hilary Benn uh, to sit for Labour. Um, So they're not aristocrats and sort of necessarily highfalutin people, but the way that they get there uh, with this tiny electorate and the way that they are imbalanced is very difficult to defend. And I think that the by-elections bring the House of Lords into disrepute. There have been attempts to end them for a very long time um, and it's time they were ended. Just on that, Meg, so the, so the, the point is that when uh, um, Clement Attlee was given a peerage, that was that back in those days, that became then a sort of hereditary peerage. Exactly. These, well, it's de- important. these days it's just for, you know, it's just for the life of the person who's given it. Exactly. We didn't actually have a system of life peerages until 1958. So anybody who was made a peer before 1958 got a hereditary peerage. So we've had descendants of Lloyd George. Um, and, um, you know, other other people on the Labour side as well, um, alongside Attlee, although he's interestingly, his grandson sits as a conservative. Um, so, it's yes, they're not necessarily the landed gentry. Some of them are sort of, you know, public servants of the past who got in via the hereditary route. So it's, it's more complicated than often appears. But nonetheless, it's an indefensible system and it's well past time that it stopped. Uh, Jess Garland, let's bring you in from the Electoral Reform Society. I mean, there were 92 of them. Presumably that means that, in theory, they could swing votes. They could have the deciding say in some issues in the House of Lords. 
course. I mean, they make up over a tenth of, of the house and, and these aren't sort of ceremonial positions. These are proper positions in our legislature. And that's why I completely agree with Meg. The way that they get there it is indefensible. There's no legitimacy to it. And, and, and it is a problem. This should be a pretty uncontroversial and, and common sense reform to make. And it is kind of crazy that it's taken over 20 years and, and this debate's still happening. I think this is the fourth time that Lord Crowcott has actually put this um, this bill forward. This yeah, this bill no, has been no this, this bill has been around in sorry this bill has no, been around on, in Meg. various forms. The bill's been around in various forms for more than 10 years. It was first proposed by David Steele back in 2010. And indeed Gordon Brown had a bill, a government bill to try and end uh, the hereditary by-elections, but it, unfortunately those elements were blocked um, just before the 2010 general election because the election coming due. So we've been trying to do this for a very long time. Every year they try, every year they fail because a small number of peers use sort of procedural tactics to block it. The vast majority in the Lords want this to happen. Um, uh, Jess, do you think that actually, instead of worrying about the hereditary peers, we should just go straight to the bigger debate of whether or not we should have the House of Lords at all? Should we have an elected House of Lords um, or an elected second chamber as exists in most other countries? Yeah, absolutely. We should be having that debate. And of course, Meg is right. This debate has gone on and there have been various attempts at uh, reform and and it, and it just doesn't seem to be able to, to get past the line. But of course, having an unelected second chamber is, is not good for democracy in general. It doesn't have democratic legitimacy. I think that weakens it. Um, and of course, next week, the, the prime minister is going off to speak at... Um, President Biden's democracy summit, telling the rest of the world how to do democracy. And here we have a very small, a small change, which would be a step in the right direction. And even that is struggling to get over the line. So, yes, I do think we need to have that big conversation. But as a small step towards improvements, this this would be something. I mean, these by-elections are, are pretty absurd um, and, and, and indefensible. And uh, I mean, just the one other thing we should point out: the the gender split on these uh, hereditary peers is particularly bad, Meg. Yes, well, most peerages pass down the male line, so it's very rare that you have a woman elected to one of these positions. Which, yes, is another reason for getting rid of them. On the large scale reform, I would say I do completely agree with Jess. You know, we need to talk about large scale reform, but we shouldn't let that get in the way of this essential small scale reform. And the problem is, often it does. You've got the Earl of Caithness, uh, you said, coming on later on, and he's going to say we need an, a, 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 you know, major changes in the system. That's an excuse. That's an excuse for blocking this bill. Um, and the need for big reform is not a reason for not proceeding with small reform while we can. The Earl of Caithness has been one of those who has consistently blocked this bill throughout the entire period. And he's one of a very few who want to block it because almost everybody thinks that this is what's needed. Well, we'll hear from uh, them in just a moment. It's really good uh, to have heard from you both this morning. Meg Russell from the uh, Constitution Unit at University College London and Jess Garland from the Electoral Reform Society. Uh, in a moment, we will hear from Lord Grocott. Uh, I spoke to him before he was up in the House of Lords, uh, putting forward his bill and the Earl of Caithness, who opposes it. And we'll dip in uh, back to the House of Lords too. Let us know what you think about this. You can text me 87222, start your message with the word Times or tweet at Times Radio. We'll continue the discussion about whether or not you should get a seat in the Lords because of who your dad was next. This is Matt Jolly on Times Radio in association with Mastercard Stride, empowering small businesses for a digital future. 
Matt Chorley on Times Radio with Strive UK from Mastercard, empowering small businesses for a digital future. Find out more at mastercard.co.uk/strive. Good morning, it's Matt Chorley on Times Radio. We're talking hereditary peers. Should they still be in the House of Lords? Ninety-two people have a seat in the House of Lords because of who their father was. Lord Grocott uh, has called, uh, is put, brought forward some backbench legislation in the House of Lords today, uh, which is being debated, which would do away uh, with the hereditary peers and the by-elections, uh, which happen when one hereditary peers uh, dies or retires, they have a by-election amongst themselves to elect a new one. Let's just dip back into the House of Lords and take a listen to the debate which is happening right now. And if things work in practice, we should not uh, try and mend that which is not broken. The view, of course, of the, of the constructivists is uh, it may work in practice, but it doesn't work in principle. Uh, a foolish attitude, if ever there was one, and one which I uh, would not advocate. Now, just finally, does the House of Lords, as it is composed and with a hereditary component, work in practice? When I was Secretary of State, I would always have a minister of my team in the Lords, and the whips would present me with various names, and I'd would look through their qualifications and experience and so on and choose them. And as it so happened, most times I chose a hereditary. I didn't know they were hereditaries or life peers. I'm afraid I was ignorant of and not acquainted with many members of this House at that stage. I chose them on the basis of their uh, experience and what I knew of their abilities. And there was a disproportionate number of people among the hereditary peers who, for one reason or another, perhaps because they'd known from birth they would one day, possibly, uh, if their father died before they did and their elder brothers predeceased them, so on, come to this place, uh, they had prepared in a sort of way for it by taking That's an Lord interesting subject. Lilly, affairs. the former Conservative Cabinet Minister, Peter Lilly, uh, speaking against this plan to do away with the hereditary peers in the House of Lords. Uh, also, uh, speaking a little earlier, was Earl Attlee. We were just discussing Earl Attlee. It was his grandfather... Uh, Clement Attlee, who was given a peerage, uh, and now he is there in the House of Lords because um, of who his grandfather was. Uh, right, well, uh, let's now... Uh, the, the reason they're discussing this in the House of Lords is because of this bill put forward by Lu Lord Grocott, who, as we've been hearing, has struggled several times to abolish the hereditary peer by-election system. I caught up with him before today's debate to ask him why he was so determined to end this constitutional peculiarity. I don't think I'd describe it as a slight constitutional peculiarity. It's certainly peculiar, but it's not that slight because um, there are 90 hereditary peers uh, in the House of Lords. And um, the House of Lords is it's not half a parliament. That's not a good way of describing it. But it's, uh, it's an important part of our legislature. Uh, and um, to have 90 places reserved for hereditary peers who are replenished uh, as far as we can see in the future by these by-elections, is, is not a good look. And what should we replace it with? What would you like to see happen to the House of Lords? Uh, well, I, we should um, reform the House of Lords, as has always been the case in the past. There's always plenty of things to do to reform it. Um, but they have to be done in relatively small bites. That's the lesson. If you try in the past to make huge reforms, then it simply gets bogged down in the parliamentary process. And mine's a fairly short, straightforward reform, which stands in its own right. It's not dependent on anything else. Um, but it's, um, it helps other reforms. For example, the 
uh, the House of Lords overwhelmingly is in favour of reducing itself in size. It's currently about 800. Uh, and uh, most of us would like to see it down to being smaller than the Commons at any rate, <clears throat> about about 600. Uh, now, obviously, if uh, if I can if I can manage to slowly reduce the number of life uh, hereditary peers from 90 to zero, that's a help towards that second objective. And but at the same time, of course, I'm in favour very much of uh, the numbers of life peers being reduced um, as as they are slowly until. Boris decided to put a whole lot of new ones in, in the Lords not so long ago. Uh, given that, and given the um, the concern that, that people... It seems to be the rather round figure of if you give £3 million to the Conservative Party, or at least people who have given £3 million to the Conservative Party seem to have ended up in the House of Lords. And given uh, concern uh, generally about um, uh, the Second Chamber... Why not go the whole hog and make the case of replacing it with, you know, in the 21st century with an elected chamber? Well, I'm all in favour of dealing with the um, uh, dealing with the kind of uh, uh, problems that you've identified. I certainly uh, um, don't think there should be an automatic entry to, to the House of Lords uh, uh, as a result of uh, paying money to the Conservative Party or any other party. Um, uh, but uh, th these things, generally speaking, have to be done uh, piecemeal. And um, and I'm all in favour, for example, though we don't want to get too much into the weeds over this, uh, of there being a statutory appointments commission. That is um, a commission which um, uh, the, which the prime minister has to ab abide by its decisions. Um, for example, when they say a particular nominee for the Lords is not acceptable, uh, that um, the prime minister can't just ride roughshod over it, which is what um, the present prime minister has done. So. Um, I think all those kind of things need doing. As for having a, a fully elected House, well, I, I'm opposed to a directly elected House. Um, I don't mind all sorts of other options, but I don't want a directly elected House for the very, very simple reason uh, that um, it, it would simply diminish the House of Commons and, uh, and often inevitably lead to, to gridlock if you, if you have a body which um, uh, has a similar kind of composition to the House of Lords, uh, House of Commons, that... Um, uh, that would not be a good thing, I don't think. And believe me, I spent long enough being a, a member of the House of Commons not to have felt that I need another elected person in the House of Lords um, uh, uh, second-guessing my decisions. Um, and on the subject of the hereditary peers, it's such a, a peculiar uh, thing. Like you said, there are 90 of them, but all, all, then when, when one of them either retires or dies, it creates this gap, and then... Uh, other hereditary peers, in fact, weirdly, they're the only people that are then elected to the House of Commons because they have this sort of little by-election for them. But it's, it's explain to me your objection to it. I mean, it's not the most diverse group in the world. I've read some of the, some like half of them went to Eton, which is quite it's slightly out of kilter with the general population. Explain your objection to the, these hereditary peers in particular. Uh, uh, well, it's just, I'm not quite sure how the Eton point uh, ties in with the government's uh, levelling up policy. Um, uh, so I'm surprised indeed that the, the government seems to be dead set against me um, by a bill uh, becoming law. But the idea that these elections are somehow, in any sense, elections as we know it, given that the only people who can stand uh, are hereditary peers, and for the most part, the only people who can vote are hereditary peers so uh, they're open free and fair elections and you could anyone can stand as a candidate provided that they've inherited a title now 
uh, it may be democracy, but not democracy as we know it. We, we even had one election uh, two or three years ago uh, when there were seven candidates for the vacancy. This was for a Lib Dem vacancy. And there were three electors. You imagine that the more, a bigger, uh, a larger number of uh, candidates than there were people voting. I mean, what a what a bizarre situation we've got ourselves into. <laughs> and um, the obviously, you mentioned that you you were an MP. You were in fact a, a parliamentary aide to Tony Blair at one point too. Do you wish that he'd not? Obviously, this is all part of his process of trying to reform the House of Lords. This was a concession that he made. Was it a mistake to have made that concession at the time, of allowing um, the ninety hereditaries to stay? Uh, it, it was indeed, but of course, um, he had a gun to his head, and we've got no less authority than the Marquis of Salisbury, who was the Conservative um, uh, leader of the. House of Lords at that time, and who was at the head of the negotiations as to what should happen to the bill that was removing the hereditaries. And he has described it in uh, in the vernacular, if you like, very recently as the whole thing was, was and that um, uh, the Labour government, despite having a huge majority in the Commons, had to give way uh, to the Conservatives in the Lords because they threatened, if the Labour government didn't give way, they threatened to wreck uh, the uh, government's whole legislative program. So I'm afraid Tony Blair had very little option but to agree to this ridiculous compromise. And so uh, when do you think we might, what year or even decade, do you think we might have a situation where your chances of getting a seat in the House of Lords doesn't depend on who your dad was? Um, uh, I, I'm nervous about making um, predictions on that front. You would think, would you not? that common sense would prevail. I, I have to cling on to that, that can there really be people who think uh, that in the 21st century, um, your position in parliament could be determined by an election, um, which uh, w where you have to be a hereditary peer to stand, and you generally speaking have to be a hereditary peer to vote. Uh, I think um, uh, if you spell that out, to the public, of course, I don't expect the public to be following these issues very closely. But whenever I've tried to spell it out, as I have done to various um, uh, news outlets uh, from other European countries, that they're quite baffled as soon as I um, start describing the system. And I hope I've described it in a simple enough way for it to get across in a relatively short radio interview. But it, it, it is patently absurd. It's laughable. It's indefensible, and sooner or later, I think um, uh, I shall succeed. That was Bruce Grocott, Lord Grocott now, of course, who sits in the House of Lords, and he's putting forward his bill in the Lords as we speak. But would ending hereditary peer by-elections really make the Lords a more democratic institution? The Earl of Caithness, whose hereditary peerage dates back centuries, has repeatedly foiled Lord Grocott's attempts to reform the system. So I caught up with him as well and asked uh, how it can be that he took his seat. When my father died, I inherited when I was 16 and I took my seat soon after my 21st birthday. And how does it feel knowing that you're there in the Houses of Parliament, on the red benches in the House of Lords, voting on the laws of the land because you inherited it from your, your father? Well, obviously, I'm extremely lucky uh, and fortunate, as anybody is, to serve in Parliament, and particularly if you're a hereditary peer. 
and but lots of my ancestors have have done it. How do I feel about it? I don't I don't know because I I don't feel I haven't had the experience of not having it. <laughs> um, and uh, so explain what what you think you bring as a as so, someone who sort of inherited their um, their seat in, in Parliament. What do you bring to to the House of Lords? Do you think? Well, everybody who comes into Parliament brings their own characteristics, their own knowledge and their own experience. I was uh, I'm a qualified surveyor, uh, so I had a, a job as well. I worked for uh, various firms uh, before I became a, a member of the government in 1984. And um, uh, do you think that this is a, an arrangement which will last, the idea of having a hereditary? But obviously, Tony Blair sort of whittled them down, but didn't go the whole hog in removing them and it feels like we're already now onto a conversation about whether we should have the house of lords at all and uh, or should it be elected what's what's your view on the long-term sustainability of the current setup no I, I don't think hereditary peers should be sitting in the house of lords but i also uh and so i agree with lord grocott on that where i disagree with him is what happens after that lord grocott wants a major constitutional change by making a wholly appointed House with a non-statutory appointments commission. I would like to see an elected House of Lords. A second chamber is absolutely essential because the House of Commons does not revise legislation in the way that the second chamber does. Now you can call it the House of Lords, you can call it a Senate, call it whatever you'd like, but under the British constitution, we desperately need to have a second revising chamber but I don't think it should be full of appointed peers, appointed by the Prime Minister, on the Prime Minister's whim, and it shouldn't contain hereditary peers. How concerned are you? There's lots of stories about how um, peerages seem to go to people who've given the rather round figure of £3 million to the Conservative Party. Is that a concern in the House of Lords, that, that this perception that if you donate enough money, you, you get a seat in Parliament? I, I, th I think there are lots of reasons why one gets a period. I guess my ancestor supported the king, uh, was on the winning side at the right time. You get a peerage uh, for all giving up your seat in the House of Commons to let a youngster uh, take over. You, there's all sorts of reasons people are given peerages. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that uh, donations to the parties is one thing. It happens on all the parties. Um, and just finally, on your uh, your, give me a bit of background on on how far back your 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 title goes. Who was the first Earl of Caithness? Uh, the first Earl of Caithness was William Sinclair, um, who was an incredibly able politician. Uh, for three hundred years, our family had served two monarchs. We were uh, Earls of Orkney, and and we were Sinclairs over. Yeah, so we uh, Orkney at that stage belonged to Norway. So we served for 100 years, we served the Norwegian monarch and the Scottish monarch. In 1455, uh, my ancestor knew full well that Orkney and Shetland would soon become part of Scotland, whatever that, however that happened. And he took the title of Earl of Caithness. And when Orkney did become part of Scotland, he lost the title of Earl of Orkney. And uh, and how many how many earls have there been since uh, who've all sat in the House of Lords? Uh, I don't know how many of my ancestors have sat in the House of Lords. I am the by UK law, I am the twentieth Earl of Caithness. And it is will there be a twenty first? Will they take a seat in the House of Lords? Do you think? 
No, I don't expect um, my son, if he uh, survives me, which I hope he does, uh, to take a seat in the House of Lords. I hope by then we've had the sort of change that was pro proposed by the coalition uh, government uh, and when uh, Mick Clegg abandoned it, it was a sad day for politics. Uh, that was the right step to make part of the House of Lords appointed and part elected. We would now be a mostly elected chamber and I would have supported that bit of legislation. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10, email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we'll get you on very soon. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.